0: You're listening to the Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. This is the 3rd Sunday of Lent, and uh, our text this morning is Matthew chapter 27 verse 45. This is Matthew's, this comes from Matthew's passion narrative. This is the moment of Jesus' death on the cross. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word of the Lord. In general, I don't think the church takes seriously these words of Jesus here, or this idea that Jesus was utterly forsaken and abandoned at the cross. It wasn't just Judas that betrayed him and forsook him, but actually it was all of his disciples and closest of friends, you could say, Peter, even. (laughs) The one who was supposedly closest to him, the one whom Jesus once remarked, you know, on you, I'm going to build my church. He denied knowing him three times. But it wasn't just his disciples and friends that forsook him, but he even felt that God himself had forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says. And because I think, I don't think Christians traditionally take this this scripture, these words very seriously, I came up with a parable a while back to elucidate this point. I call it the parable of Judas Iscariot. And maybe you've seen this on Facebook before. I've posted up there the last couple of Lent, usually around Good Friday. Um, but this parable is an alternate ending, uh, fan fiction, if you will, uh, an alternate ending to Judas's story. I'm not really a fan of Judas, that's not what I meant. But uh, we all know the story of Judas, right? Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which he received from the chief priests to, you know lead them to Jesus, to essentially turn Jesus over to them. But Judas experienced guilt and remorse thereafter, not only returning the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest, but then he went out and hung himself, we're told. And that's where my parable begins. It came to pass that after Judas committed suicide, that he found himself standing before God in heaven, Terrified that God was going to send him to hell for such an egregious sin, he fell on his face, crying out, Please, Lord, have mercy on me. But God replies softly, What are you worried about, my dear son? You have done nothing wrong. You've done a great thing. You've played a key role in the salvation of the world by delivering Jesus into the hands of his killers. You have made it possible for the sins of the world to be forgiven. My will could not have been accomplished without you. Shocked by this, Judas slowly stands and asks, But I was tempted by the devil to betray him. I was paid 30 pieces of silver, a ransom, in order to do so. I'm a terrible man. No, God replies reassuringly. You are a great man. I made the devil tempt you. Judas is perplexed, but I thought you would never tempt anyone to do evil. God replies, you're right, I wouldn't. This wasn't evil. It was my goodwill that Jesus should suffer and die. It was also my goodwill that you should betray him. Nothing is out of my control, dear one. Do you have such little faith in me that you would doubt my power and my wisdom in this matter and in all matters? Judas finds himself disturbed by God's words. And says, but that would mean that you betrayed Jesus too. He was an innocent man, your own son, no less. And you allowed him to be brutally murdered. You abandoned him in his hour of need. Like the rest of us did. Enraged at Judas's word, words, God thunders. How dare you judge me? I was going to give you eternal life in heaven, but because of this insolence and betrayal, I condemn you now to hell. With this, Judas screams and disappears. Over the next few hours, God sits on his throne, seething in anger and replaying Judas's words in his mind. He eventually calms and comes to believe that maybe Judas had a point. Finally, Days later, overcome by grief and guilt, God finds a tree in one of heaven's many gardens and hangs himself. So that's the parable of Judas Iscariot. And I wrote it in part because I wanted to reveal the problems with believing that God the Father wanted Jesus to be betrayed, forsaken, and crucified to atone for the world's sins. It's kind of a problem with that. (laughs) Um, We talked a little bit about that last week in our talk about Calvinism. It's a deeply Calvinist idea, but also just a conservative Christian idea wrapped up in penal substitutionary atonement theory. But I wanted to show how problematic that theology is um, because it implicates God as much as Judas. But I also wrote this parable because I wanted to emphasize that Jesus felt forsaken of God, just as much as he felt forsaken by Judas and his disciples and his friends. I don't think we take this seriously enough. And I think we don't take it seriously enough because I think it disturbs us. But to me, this reveals a paradox. And it's this. We are closest to Christ when God feels the most distant and absent. When we feel the most forsaken of God, when God feels utterly distant or non-existent because of our sufferings, it is then, and only then, that we are closest to Christ and truly sharing in His sufferings. In other words, the absence of God is the presence of God. It's a paradox, right? Revealed in the crucified Christ. In these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is forsaken of God. God is despairing of God. It's a paradox. What does it mean? Well, to me, it means that the God who is truly with us in the world, the God revealed in the suffering, the forsaken, and the crucified Christ is not an all-powerful supreme being. This God is not an all-powerful supreme being who can intervene supernaturally and save the day if we just pray hard enough and, and believe enough. That God, in a sense, dies on the cross or is shown to have never been real in the first place. And another God is resurrected or is shown to be real. A God who suffers with us in the world. A God who stands in solidarity with the broken. The afflicted,
1: the suffering, the poor, the oppressed. This is what I think that great German theologian
0: Dietrich Bonhoeffer meant when he said this in 1945 from a Nazi prison, no less. And he knew something about feeling God forsaken. He wrote this, before God and with God, we live without God. Before God and with God, we live in the world without God, meaning this all-powerful God, I think. God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. God is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way, in which he is with us and helps us. The scriptures make it quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. End quote. To me, the cross is about a radical rede- redefinition of power, namely God's power, and the way we understand it. Think about the cross for a moment from a first century Jewish perspective, which I think is the best way <laughs> to think about it, the original way, a first century Jewish perspective. The cross was the ultimate disappointment for them because they were expecting Jesus, his followers, were expecting him to liberate them from the Romans, just as God had supposedly liberated them from countless enemies and foreign oppressors throughout their history, starting, of course, with the story of the Exodus, the Egyptians, where God supposedly by real power, I mean real power, real might, real brute force, intervened in history and liberated them, right? The ten plagues, the the splitting of the Red Sea, and then, of course, the drowning of all those nasty Egyptians when God allowed the Red Sea to collapse back in on them. They were expecting Jesus to show up. They were expecting the God in Jesus, their God in Jesus, the Messiah, to show up in a similar way and smite those nasty Romans. Just like the way he showed up for them throughout their history, to lay waste to their enemies on the battlefield in a dazzling demonstration of real power, real power. power from on high. But this God revealed, this, this God revealed in Christ is different than that, isn't he? <laughs> to put it mildly. The God revealed in Jesus that that God of the Exodus, that God of the Old Testament, is strangely absent or non-existent in Christ. By that, I don't mean the entire God of the Old Testament because the God of love and justice, the God on the side of the oppressed is from the Old Testament is absolutely revealed in Jesus. But this God of power and majesty and might and glory and transcendence, this this warrior God, this tribal deity that would show up on the battlefield and as a destroying
1: angel, this God is totally absent in Jesus. Not only did Jesus not come to their rescue,
0: liberate them from the Romans, not only did he not do that, but he himself was crucified by them. Do we really wrap our minds around that? Think about it from their perspective. Not only did God not show up for them in the way that they expected from a historical point of view, but their Messiah himself was crucified by these Romans. The God revealed in Christ not only didn't liberate his people from the Romans, but was himself stripped naked and crucified by them. The ultimate defeat, the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate demonstration of powerlessness. What else can this mean but that God's power was radically redefined in Christ, both God's social power and supernatural power. With regards to social power, Jesus showed us that God was on the side of the, po- of the poor and the powerless and not the wealthy and the powerful, which was a big surprise back then. Likewise, with regards to supernatural power, the God revealed in the crucified and forsaken Christ was revealed to not be an all-powerful supreme being, but a God who suffers with us in the world. And I realize this is not a traditional understanding of the cross. But I feel that I'm just following the cross to its ultimate conclusion, which I think is good news, by the way. I don't think this is, abs- this is actually bad news. This is ultimately good news, in part because this view solves a big problem for us, philosophically and theologically speaking. When people ask, how could an all-powerful and loving God allow unjust suffering to exist in the world like babies with cancer? The answer is, God is not all-powerful. The God revealed in the suffering and crucified Christ is not all-powerful. But in his so-called weakness, and I say so-called because it's not true weakness, but in his so-called weakness, a different kind of power is revealed. The power of love, the power of courage, the power of solidarity. In this way, the God revealed in Christ overcomes the world, and so do we. That's real power. Consider Jesus' words in John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus, of course, is speaking of his own death here. And he's playing on this idea that planting a seed in the ground is like burying a dead body, his dead body to be exact, (laughs) in the same way that a seed goes into the ground and becomes
1: so much more. So he will die and become so much more. Meaning us. We are the fruit of Christ's death. We are the fruit of God's death in the world. God died in the world. And then like a seed, God germinated in the ground, so to
0: speak. Germinated in the tomb. And was transfigured. It's a great Bible word. Transfigured into something new just as a seed is transfigured into a plant that bears fruit. So God was transfigured into us, the so-called body of Christ, as Paul puts it.
1: We are the presence of God in the world now. We are the hands and feet of the risen Lord in the world. God has no body, but our body. We need to live accordingly with that responsibility in
0: mind. But to be clear, this is not atheism, not really. This is a kind of pantheism and mysticism. God is all, or all is God, or all is in God, all is one. This idea is quite old and quite in keeping with the church mystics over the centuries. And we find such ideas echoed in nature itself, throughout nature itself, not just in things like seeds, as Jesus remarked, but also in the stars. I love this metaphor, this analogy. You've heard me use it before. Think of the death of Jesus as being like the death of a star, just like a seed that needs to die, so to speak, in order to be in order to become something else, something greater So the stars need to die In order to become something else and something greater Meaning us The fact is all the elements in our bodies Heavier than hydrogen Hydrogen, was, most of it was created at the Big Bang But all the other elements in our body Heavier than hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, iron, etc They all had to be made in the immense heat and pressure of billions and billions of stars over the course of billions and billions of years, we are literally stardust. That's what we are. We're stars. And it's not just us that are stardust, but, but everything is. The pew you're sitting on, this entire planet, every living thing, it's all made from stars. When a star dies, it explodes. A lot of them do go supernova and they eject all their material out into the cosmos. And then that eventually becomes planets and even
1: living things. The stars become minds. (laughs) Stars become minds
0: like us. This is where everything comes from. We find this same idea, I think, at the core of Christianity, which is, of course, the cross. God went supernova at the cross. This is my reading of it, and a lot of the church mystics, non-traditional reading, but still found in the church. Like a star, God died, and his spirit was scattered or poured out into the world and now inhabits us and everything. This profound idea is exemplified in the idea of of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. God is poured out into the world, which only could take place after God's death. And this idea is also enshrined in the most sacred of Christian traditions, the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake in here just a moment. Here we find the crucified body of God, the crucified body of Christ, His body and blood is scattered among us as bread and wine in the sacrament, right? His body and blood is scattered among us as bread and wine. We consume it and thereby remember his dismembered body. We remember his dismembered body. We reconstruct the deconstructed body of God in ourselves, in this sacred meal, By taking these elements into our body,
1: we thus become the body of God in the world. That, to me, is the deeper meaning of the Lord's Supper. It's
0: kind of like that scene in in Star Wars uh, when Obi-Wan is killed by Darth Vader. And I realize this is a jarring juxtaposition, (laughs) a jarring shift to make here, but I know, it's great. By the way, Lucy yesterday watched the entire first three episodes. I mean, A New Hope empire strikes back and return of the jedi she had never done that before and she was just engrossed for like six hours watching i was like this i told her to tell you today about this like mr max will be very impressed um but anyway there's this scene right where obi-wan is killed by darth vader uh and just before he's he's killed what does obi-wan say to vader if you strike me down i shall become more powerful than you could possibly imagine what does he mean well in other words he's going to become he's going to become one with the force right and the force is everywhere the force is understood as this transcendent metaphysical power this underlying nature of all reality that's everywhere and every in everything and in everyone which of course is a great metaphor for god if there ever was one and to be clear george lucas or whoever wrote that scene was getting that from the ancients he didn't really they're not the first to think of this that that's basically ancient mysticism. But the same could be said of Christ. He became more powerful in death than he was in life. His death and burial are not the end of him, but actually the beginning of him. And the very means by which he becomes a Holy Ghost, if you will, an energy, a force, a divine presence that is found everywhere and in everyone. Thus, the death of God is really the life of God. The powerlessness powerlessness of God is really the power of God. The absence of God is really the presence of God. This, to me, is the deeper meaning of the suffering and crucified Christ, the God-forsaken God, the God who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let those with ears to hear, hear. And with that in mind, let's receive the Lord's Supper this morning as Max leads us in song. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Okay. Yep. Marsha, for those of you who can't hear uh, online, just said that um, I'm going to try my best to summarize it. But um that he knew all along that he would have to die um, because of what he was doing. Uh, but when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, he wasn't actually no longer believing in God. It was just his human side that was suffering, but not his spirit side, you would say. Yeah, okay. That's certainly a traditional reading of of that text in the church. Um, not the only one I... And I'll, if I may just respond to it briefly to offer an alternative, you know, for me, and actually I get this from Jack Caputo, um, theologian, philosopher, modern day, um, you know, that that reading in some ways, you know, kind of turns that moment into a kind of theater, right? Jesus is kind of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With kind of a wink in his eye, kind of like, he doesn't really mean it. Um, and that he really wasn't suffering. Eh, maybe his human side was, but the God side of him, you know, the real side of him knew everything was okay. And, you know, um, okay. All right. You can go that way. But in my, in my experience, in my personal belief, I feel like what makes that moment really meaningful is that Jesus really, really felt that way fully. And it wasn't any kind of, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't holding he wasn't holding a part of himself back. That he was really, he was really nailed there. He was really nailed there, completely, and suffering, and holistically. And by him crying out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" It wasn't that he'd become an atheist in that moment, but that, um, in essence, he was like all of us. He experienced doubt. He experienced despair. Um, and I find that incredibly meaningful that's my reading of it um but thank you yeah that's
1: that's a traditional reading um somebody else yeah Mar- uh, not marcia ann
2: um i think that brings up questions about um fully god and fully human that we don't understand and you know I have historically been presented with the tradition that says, well, you know, God, Jesus was, Jesus understands us because he was fully human and he experienced what we experienced. But behind there is this thing of, he was really fully God. He knew, he knew this was only temporary. Like I could suffer through most anything. I can suffer through childbirth. It's temporary. It's excruciating, but it's going to end and i'm going to get something if i didn't know that and i thought that suffering was just going to be my existence that would be unbearable and so like this idea that um i just think it 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 illustrates the struggle that we have between the idea of what does that mean this idea this this you know dualism that we talked about this morning in a in a different sort of way of of Jesus being fully two different things but really we privilege or prioritize the god part as opposed to the human part if he was if if he didn't experience that feeling of god forsaking him fully the way any of us would have experienced it then he doesn't truly fully experience humanity.
1: Yeah, thanks for those thoughts. And again, you're illustrating
0: the dilemma that has plagued the church since (laughs) the Gospels were written, and Marsh is recognizing that as well. It's always been a contentious argument. and you know uh frankly the church in the 4th century tried to reserve, it uh resolve it with the creeds right this idea of we need to affirm christ's full divinity and uh there was always this debate as to what well, was he half divine half half human or was he you know fully human and and not divine at all or was he just fully divine you know and and the the reason why that was such a problem is for what you said well if he was not divine at all he's just fully human then how could he save us right and if he was fully divine and not human at all well then how could he relate to us how, how could he you know what i mean so I mean, this was always the dilemma um which you know the deepest and most profound spiritual truths are always paradoxical in nature you know we have to be able to in a sense as people of faith um kind of hold on to both ideas and, and that's my feeling on it but i might be wrong which is always what's that and say, I don't know. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's good.
1: Um, Yeah, Marsha, go ahead. And I know you don't like the microphone. So I'll go ahead and share with everybody what you say. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. 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 You. Again, the debate between dualism and monism,
0: you know, is is are we two separate beings or is everything one? Right. Is is reality split between two different spheres, the spiritual and the physical? This this is an ancient debate. You know, I land more on the monist side. You're more of a dualist. It sounds like that's cool. Uh, <laughs> um we can talk more about about that in the, in the future but um yeah you're you're bringing up an, a very very old debate and there's there's not the right way in my mind yeah yeah i i i'm i'm a i i used to be a dualist now i'm more of a monist and i we could talk about why i've gone that direction but there's good reasons to still hang on to some dualist ideas too I,
1: yeah good stuff anybody else Okie doke. Well, shorter discussion today. Um, that's cool. So, a couple of weeks left to Lent,
0: and um, let us conclude our time together. Bob is not here this morning because he's sick and his whole family is sick. God bless you guys. Um, but I don't know if we have our benediction this morning, benediction slide or not. I don't have it. I should have it memorized. <laughs> oh, lovely. Oh, good. Okay. Well, let's say this together as we conclude our time together. As we go from this place, We commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. All right. Thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace.